You are now listening to the Socks and Sandals podcast. Every time an independent, a truly independent source goes into the Portland Police Bureau, we find chaos. Just one of the people like just told to my managers who like had fired me, and they were like, yeah, did you see Tevin's video was on Complex? And he was like, man, dog, they sick, man. That moment, I thought, you know what? I don't care. I'm gonna sit here in the middle of this aisle in Target and talk to her and break down what is going on and why she believes that these white Barbie dolls are more valuable or should come home with us over these brown and black Barbie dolls. I think that what we're forgetting is that racism is a very lucrative project. Mm-hmm. As long as you can keep a whole bunch of people down because you miseducated the whole population. Then you can make money off those people. So what is the gospel? What is the pure unadulterated yes, gospel? Yes, yes, and that is what I live by. Because the moment this changes is the moment I'm leaving Christianity. Okay. The pure, unadulterated gospel, and I can say it in one sentence, but I'll elaborate, is love God and do whatever the fuck you want. Peace and blessings, everyone. Welcome back to the Socks and Sandals podcast where economic elevation and spiritual cultivation converge and we unapologetically discuss our worldview. I am unconditioned. I am unlimited. I am indivisible duality. I am your host, Emmanuel Williams. This is episode 180. Greetings, everyone. Now, it's been about six or seven months since I last put out an episode. And some of you may have been asking, Emmanuel, where have you been? And I say to that, I had a baby. <laughs> well, not me personally, right? Like my wife, she had gave birth. No, nah, but my, my son, he's uh, 11 months now. And uh, with that change, got a new job and just a whole lot going on in my life. And so I just had to pause for a second. You know what I'm talking about? You just got to chill out. You got to reassess the situation. And then some new opportunities came. And then there was a hole. There was a gap in my spirit. I'm like, yo, what's What's wrong? Like, I feel like something isn't and like that creative bug. Those those juices that was flowing while I was creating, doing the pod for so long started in 2017. Went two years without a break and then took a little break. And then the, and then the pandemic came and then I'm like, you know what? I've been off for six months. I need to start the pod again. So here we are. Episode 180. We doing it bigger and better. As you can hear, the sound quality is as crispy as it gets. We're in GMP Studios on Northeast 24, not Northeast, but East 24th Burnside. And uh, tonight, on today, I have an amazing guest with me. She is a mother, a daughter, a woman of God, an entrepreneur, someone who's been hard pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, struck down, but not destroyed, a living testimony, an overcomer. We have in our midst the owner of the Holy Beans Coffee Shop in Portland, Oregon, Miss Shalimar Williams. Shalimar, welcome to the pod. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. I'm so glad you're here. Yeah, thank you. To be you. able to help me get the rust off real quick. That introduction, you got an A++. A++. You got me excited about myself. Let's go. <laughs> Let's go. Well, before we get into your story, because we got a lot to talk about tonight. So before we go any further, tell us a little bit more about who you are, where you're from, and what's a typical day in the life of Miss Shalimar Williams. Oh, man. Well, I was born in Portland, mm-hmm. moved away, uh, probably I think I was about eight and grew up in California, Northern California, 
on a horse ranch and then came back here in high school. So I've been here for a very long time now. And let's see, the typical day, I wake up about five in the morning. Sheesh. I know. I'm an early riser. And you got the coffee to wake you up? Yeah. Or do you just wake up just on the strength? No, I wake up ready to go. Wow. I do. I wake up ready to go. Wow. Um, I'm a mom, so I definitely make sure that my son's stuff is in place. He's ready to go. He's in middle school. He's 12. He's amazing. Mm -hmm. And then I head to the coffee shop, get there around 7, mm -hmm. and start prepping and start my day. That's it. Yeah, that's it. That's what's up. 5 o'clock, though. Yeah. I've been trying that. So I was doing that during the pandemic. I was getting up like around, actually right before the pandemic, and then during, I was like, all right, let me keep this momentum. So getting up around 5, 5.30, and it just got to a point where it's just like, nah. Especially after my son was born, like, my whole sleeping pattern got thrown off. Oh, I bet. And I'm using that as an excuse to not <laughs> get back up on that same schedule. But uh, salute to you for doing that. Thank you. You know, because that's, that's some discipline right there. Now, um, we got a lot to talk about as it, as it pertains to your story and who you are, where you're from, and how you've become the person that you are, right? So- um, before we get into where you're at right now, tell us about your formative years, right? So you talked a little bit about growing up on the farm, but just like your, your family experience, um, and really like in your teen, early twenties, like those environmental influences that formed the late teens, early twenties, Shalimar. Mm. So very, at a very young age, I would say that my I don't ever have any memories of my dad. My parents were married, but divorced very quickly. So by the time I was five, my dad was incarcerated. And so I really had a relationship with him through pictures and letters. But mm. what is what kind of relationship is that? And so um, my mom was an addict. Um, so there was a lot of uh, drugs going in and out of the house and a lot of lack of sleep. And just there wasn't really a family, not, not a dynamic. And so... Mm. By the time I was seven, my brother came along and I became a mom at that point. Um, and so lots of um, lots of back and forth to California. Every time my mom would go to treatment, I would end up going. My aunt and uncle would drive up here and pick me up and take me to the farm and to put me back together and put me in counseling. And then my mom would get out and she'd want her kids back. And so I'd come back to Portland. And then I would say by the time... Let's see. By the time I was eight, I was in the third grade. I um, got taken away. So I ended up in a foster home for about six months, I would say. And so they ended up going to the prison and asking my dad, like, hey, this is it. We're not giving her back to her mom. What can we do with her? We ha She has family in California. Can you sign your rights over? And he was like, yeah, absolutely. And so my mom ended up signing her rights over also. And... Um, I got shipped to California on the farm. Mm. And so I have like, it's crazy because I have these pictures of, I got my first pony when I was four. And so you have this little girl that's sitting on this pony and your first thoughts are of like privilege and spoiled and all of these positive things that you would think that a little girl would be having versus really like, this is a little girl that has lived in a crack house, has seen gang members go in and out, doesn't have parents, doesn't know what it's like to be loved and to be kissed on and those kind of things. And so that's, that's the representation that I see versus that's not what you would see. And so um, I stayed down there for, gosh, like Ty's 14. 
It's 14. And I will, and I will say that even though I didn't have parents, if it wouldn't have been for my aunt and uncle, my childhood had been really, it would have been really messed up. Like I, I was in 4-H. Um, I was in horse shows. I had my own horses. And so I did have like a lot of privileges and a lot of things, but I also grew up in a bubble, if that makes sense. Like, yeah, I mean, it's, it's privileged to, it's really like who you, who you asking? Yeah. Because yeah. I think it would be more privileged perceived as more privileged if it was by design mm-hmm. as opposed to kind of by default. Right. Just what had happened. Had it had to happen, somebody had to step in. Yeah. And fortunately, when they stepped in, you know, they had some type of structure. So that they was did. that yeah. was cool. Yeah. So even and then, I mean, you take it a step further though. I grew up on about a hundred acres in the middle of nowhere on a dirt road. I went to the same school. There was no middle school. I've never been to middle school, and I was the only colored black brown anything in the whole town the only non-white <laughs> right like the only melanated person literally for sure. tell high school tell high school and so um now looking back i had no identity mm. i had there who what was my identity mm. you know i don't i don't look like the people that are raising me and so i moved back here in high school and uh i kind of went left after that Okay. It was it was another who am I? Because now here I am. I've never been on public transportation. I've never been around this many people. So and when you was on the eight bus, it was it was a culture shock. When well, you was headed to the Lloyd Center, is that what you're saying? Yeah, I had to learn how to ride the number four. And my mom lived across the street from Peninsula Park, and it was just mm. like it was a huge, huge shock for me. Huge, mm. I huge. Can imagine going from the only black kid to Northeast Port, and this is. Once again, you talking about coming back in high school. Mm-hmm. So this is late nineties, early two thousands. Yeah, late nineties. Late nineties, and people don't. Just as a sidebar, people don't really understand, especially like where Portland is at right now, twenty twenty two. The gentrification really started like early two thousands, right? But where yeah. we're at right now, and there's a lot of new black folks coming into the city. They do not believe when we tell them stories about how black Portland was. They just oh, can't. Man. They can't imagine. They can't even see it. Like, no, I hear what y'all saying, but there's no way. Can you tell folks like what that was like coming to Portland? And it was like black, black. It was black, black. It definitely, it was black, black, but it also, um, it was intriguing, but it was also very scary because Mm. again, here I thought I found my identity um, in this logging town and now I moved to the big city and it's black, black. And now I don't have that identity that I held on to. So now what is, who am I? What is my identity? Word. And that, and for those that are listening and don't know who Shalomar is and haven't come across her story whatsoever, I'm, I'm taking this route of her story because it all leads to, from what I can tell, like your maturation into who you are right now and you starting your coffee shop. So let's fast forward a little bit. Um, so now you're in Portland out of high school mm-hmm. and life is, is different. It is different. Um, there was a car accident that went very wrong, very serious cars. Can you tell, tell us about the type of act, what, what was happening and then the ramifications of that car accident, the many ramifications of that car accident. So I think that being that young and in those formative years, 
you internalize a lot of things that are going on. And as you get older, a lot of the acting out, a lot of the anger, a lot of that was me now trying to put that out into the world and to try to communicate it somehow. So what do you do when you don't know how to do that? You find coping mechanisms. And so mine was um, validation from people. Mine was drinking. Mine was all these outside sources, anything that I didn't have to look at myself. And I didn't have the structure or even the parents, once again, to kind of guide me where I needed to go. And so by the time I was 23, I I was ripping and running and in the streets of Northeast Portland. And I um, I wrecked my car. I rolled my car down Columbia Boulevard and I ended up uh, almost killing somebody and myself. And uh, I ended up going to prison for a couple of years. Hmm. And so you went to prison because of a, a DUI? So because I was intoxicated, I did get mm-hmm. a felony DUI, Okay, but I also um, was charged with an assault. And so when I, I got arrested. Because somebody got hurt? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So when I got arrested, they pulled me over and they're like, yeah, you have um, you have a warrant for attempted murder, measure 11. And, I, and at the time, like I used to fight a lot. I was very, I was a terrorist. I was kind of like a Tasmanian devil around here. And so I was just like, wait, like trying to replay all these fights I've been in and I know I didn't hurt somebody that bad. And so um, I sat in Clackamas County for a weekend and I ended up getting mm-hmm. transported to Multnomah. And that's mm-hmm. when they were like, hey, this is why you were been arrested. And so you had to serve how much time? Two years. Two years. Rewind though, rewind though. So you say you got in a lot of fights. Yeah. So you had hands. Yeah. I wouldn't say had, have. No, I was kidding. Wow. I just don't, I don't see that. I don't see it. With, with all due respect, like just... Because you're so like nice and pleasant, yeah. I just can't see you, like you know what I mean. I think that for me, what I've learned about myself is that I've had to apologize to some people that I've had altercations with in the past before I went to prison because I projected a lot of my pain and a lot of my anger onto people that didn't even deserve that. And subcon, I mean, I didn't know that I was doing that. And now looking back after doing all of my internal work and having to dismantle my values and who I was a person and not even knowing myself and what did I value. And a lot of times I didn't even value myself. So mm. I did um, project a lot of that onto other people. Where, So here we are. So now we're at, at this point where um, you had the DUI and now you're incarcerated, but you know, as, as humans, we're naturally resistant to change. Right. And so we're all mostly creatures of habit. Um, even if the habit is destructive, right? So rapid change typically comes from uh, highly emotional, emotionally charged events or trauma. Um, so you were in a really bad car accident, which is borderline like a, a near-death experience for you, mm-hmm. right? And then um, you're incarcerated for two years. Can you speak about how that chain of events affected your outlook on life and also how was it foundational to you, you know, creating Holy Beans Coffee? I would say that those two years completely changed my life completely. I, but I also could have, I didn't utilize the first year I was in there to change my life. It was like, okay, I'm in here. How can I get out? What program can I get into to get out early? I'm still manipulative. I'm still like not really, comprehending what I had done and what had got me here. And so I ended up um, my first weekend there, I started going to church just to get out of my cell. I was not trying to go to no church and none of that. 
And I ended up, I kept going and I, I met my mentor who currently is still my mentor after 16 years and, um, representation, representation lacks for me. And so here would come this beautiful black woman in here and you can be hood, holy and healthy and that's okay. And so she kept coming in every week and that's what I seen. And so when you see something over and over again, it's intriguing, um, not only did I at first I thought that like maybe I can mimic that and I can get out early because you know I'm trying I'm I'm trying to get out. So and you was you was using church to get out of jail early. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Okay, okay. Um, <laughs> Does that work? Has that have you seen it? Did you see other people? It was like all right, Lord, I see what you're doing for them. You know what I mean? Yeah. So okay. if I if I can, <laughs> but it's all it's all a cycle. It's all this manipulation because if as long as I can manipulate. I don't have to look at myself. I don't have to look at my own stuff that this is what got me here. And so after a while though, I really started sitting and reading and I got um, into this cognitive boot camp, which I got out early release, but I, cause I couldn't go to treatment cause I didn't do drugs. I couldn't go to like boot camp. I would have got caught out, kicked out her fraternizing anyway. So, and then here I go to this cognitive boot camp and this thinking, and I'm like, I get this really old white man as my counselor and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to manipulate you, whatever you need me to write or say, like I'm out, man, that white man gave me a run for my money. He was like, you are great. You have a grandiose personality. You're a manipulator. You don't value yourself. And he really, really challenged me and I would leave and I would have to go sit on my bunk and really look at myself. And it was ugly. It was ugly because not only did I have to deal with the things that happened to me as a kid, but then I had to deal with the choices that I made. And nobody wants to do that. And so I would say that six months really, really transformed me huge. Mm. And then here we are. Yeah. Owner of Holy Beans Coffee. Yeah. Now, during those two years, there was something that happened. Right? There was there was some there was a transformation and there were certain things that you gravitated towards and that you fell in love with. I heard you say in the in a previous interview that you Fell in love with coffee, mm -hmm. and you fell in love with Jesus. I did. I would sit on my bunk, and I would read my Bible, and I still have that Bible to this day. And I would read, and I never drank coffee before I went to prison. Mm -hmm. I drank wine. I didn't drink coffee. Word. You know, and so, but it became this routine, and I just became, I started reading a lot. And then I got my GD, and I remember how much, like, I'm an avid reader. Like, I love to read. And so I fell in love with all of the things that I used to do when I was an honor roll student and when life kind of made sense a little bit. And so um, once I started tutoring the, the other women in there and I was like, I'm going to get out and I enrolled in college. And so by the time I got out, I was already enrolled in college and I knew I really, really wanted to do the right thing, but it was more so to prove everybody wrong that I wouldn't go back. It really wasn't about me. It was about approving everybody wrong. Uh, um, and so I, but I, then there was a part of me that I was like, I'm gonna do the right thing. I'm going to get out. I'm gonna go to a halfway house. I could have went to my family's house, but they drink, they smoke. So if I would have put myself in that same situation, I would have went back. So for a lot of years, I made the choices based off of, uh, look, I'm, look at, look what I did. Look, my success was based off of everybody else and proving everybody else wrong. Where now, so, so you've been through a lot, right? And you're still here, still standing, still strong. Amen. And you have the shop. Um, I want to say personally, I am so happy that you persevered, right? I didn't know you until like a couple months ago, but I've been looking for a black owned coffee shop. Like sit down, 
with space for years and we we just haven't had it right and there's a few others that are out there but like and there's one in particular i'm not trying to throw no shade so i'm not going to say the name but there's nowhere to sit down right and it's in a physical location where it's like and it's it's not really clean over there so i don't really want to go over there like that but you're on 26 in alberta you know what i mean you in the heart of the hood i grew up probably uh, on 15th and going so uh 13 blocks from there right and so and it's two blocks down from from my job black united fund so it's just perfect location and the networking that goes on like every week I see somebody that I haven't seen in years. It's the networking that happens there is beautiful. It's amazing. It's so beautiful. It's, it's like bringing everybody back. We're all coming back organically to this spot, mm-hmm. like coming back home. I've literally seen um, my best friend's aunt that grew up across the street from me. She left Portland in the mid-90s. Wow. I just seen her last week. Shout out, shout out to net, shout out to net. I just seen it and I hadn't seen her since, but if it wasn't for the coffee shop, there was no reason for us to be in the same place at the same time. Yeah. But now everybody's there. So fast forward to, you know, you opening the shop. Can you, um, contrast like before opening the shop, what were your expectations of how things were going to go versus a few months into it, how things are going now? Like compare Mm. and contrast that. My mind is blown. I knew that I knew what I wanted Holy Beans to be. I knew that I wanted to be this community based space. I knew that I was going to hire felons. I knew that I would hire people in recovery. I knew that I would want to see a lot of healing there and also um, just love and hope. And when people come there and they spend their money, like you're contributing to somebody fighting for their kids or you're contributing to somebody that's enrolled in college or even fighting for their life. Cause sometimes when you get out of prison, you're fighting for your life. You're fighting to stay free. You're fighting to not free just physically, but mentally it's, it's very hard that transition. And so I, I just thought I was going to open a coffee shop and help people like literally like that's it. And so um, when I, I put all the tables together and all the chairs and, I'd be in there late at night hanging all the pictures. And what do you like, mean you put the tables together? What do you mean? I did. So all the tables, the couches, like literally, like I, I lived all the frames, everything, Sheesh. because I knew the energy that I wanted it to be. I, I, I know I feel like energy is very transferable. And so if I set the tone and I set the energy from the beginning mm-hmm. of what that was, then that's what would be in there. And so I, um, all the chairs, all the tables, the picture frames, everything I put together. Mm-hmm. And I'd be in there late night, like, what is it going to sound like? When people are in here, are people going to even come? Mm. And so there was always that fear of like, what if nobody comes there? And, and literally like I go in there every day and I hear the chatter and I hear the people and I've seen the tears and you've got people coming in there that are infants and to 91 and to come listen to jazz and they cry because they feel like they're at home. So the magnitude and the impact that it's had just on that street in two months is it's mind blowing. It's like so much community support. Mm-hmm. Right. It's um, it just seems like a, a daily flow. Like anytime I'm in there, I can always hear someone like congratulating you, yeah. thanking you, just grateful for the space because it's spacious, too. Yeah. Like that's what's rare. Like we have a, a black owned spot in Portland that is spacious. Like we can go in there and relax. You got couches and the fireplace. Yes. And, yes. Yeah. And I was telling you, like, there's a there's another coffee shop on Alberta. Uh, I think it's like on 20th or something like that. And I used to go there in the morning. 
and I just went there by default because I didn't want to go to Starbucks. Yeah. And I was just like, let me find somewhere else to go. So I went to this place right down the street from my job. I was just like, oh my God, like it's just not comfortable. I don't want to sit there. The chairs and the couches are old and dusty, right? And it's just like when you walk in there, the folks look at you and they give you that look like, man, I hope this person doesn't stay. Wow. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just like not welcoming at all. And those that are black that are in Portland, y'all know what I'm talking about. When you mm-hmm. go into an establishment and they give you the eye contact that is cold. Yes. You will, you will never be the minority at Holy Bean. Exactly. Exactly. So I appreciate you for that. And, uh, and all the success that's coming to you is well-deserved for sure. Thank you. Um, No doubt. Now, to change gears a little bit, we live in a city, Portland, Oregon, right? It's known as the whitest city in America. Not only that, it's one of the most irreligious cities. It is. Right? So it has been said that we have the most strip clubs in America per capita. And I'm sure... Our church to strip strip club ratio is probably just on an unprecedented level. Right. So I would imagine that people have suggested to you that you not mix religion and business. Oh, yeah. You know, not don't mix your spiritual convictions, you know, with with your vocation. All right. So before opening the shop, did you or even during at, at this present moment, have you ever felt pressure to potentially shift change the name or even change the names of the drinks because they're based on, you know, Bible scriptures. Have you ever felt that pressure? I definitely, there was parts of me after I, so, so the name, I know, I know I needed it to be spiritual. Mm-hmm. I actually created a list of about five or six names and that's the name that my son picked. And, um, as it evolved, I knew that, I knew that God had given me the vision. I knew that I needed to stick to it. Mm-hmm. I even, I've had, believers come to me during throughout the process and say, you know, you shouldn't name your drinks, the books of the Bible. You shouldn't do that. And um, believers, not, not believers, the, not the non-believers believers mm. and more than one. And, um, I was like, no, I'm going to do it. Like, that's the vision. That's the vision. That's what I need it to be. But literally like, I will say from everything that I put in my, in my business plan, except for the size of the space is a reality. So literally the vision that he gave me from, from the beginning, I stuck to it and it's a reality and it's a lot bigger than what it was. But a lot of believers were like, you shouldn't do that. Um, you're in Portland, you're in Portland, like, don't do that. And I was like, no, like I have to do that. And, um, people come from all over now to, to read the books of the Bible to say, and people now like, well, Google what's Proverbs. And so I don't, I don't have to change it i don't have to i also out of respect you have like the book the names of the drink as far as like proverbs or roman but i also have the description next to it just out of respect like if they don't want to say it but um i haven't really i haven't had any slack from it i haven't had if anything it's more curiosity i have had three different families come from idaho just to experience it really yeah i've had um people so come they made from like up a, north like a for lack of a better term a pilgrimage yeah to holy beans coffee Mm -hmm. that's dope yeah that's hard so i definitely um there's been a lot more good out of it than i i haven't had anybody actually say since i've been open like hey you shouldn't do that or you shouldn't do this this is portland but definitely um 
uh, what did I have? I had a verse on one of the chalkboards and they were like, well, what does that mean? And I told them and they were like, oh, that's great. And then the other somebody else like actually Googled what the verse was. And Mm -hmm. so it's definitely a conversation piece, but also um, no matter what religion you are, no matter where you come from, at the end of the day, they all are centered around love. Mm. And everything that I would like to think that I represent for people is love. Like I love on people, I hug on people. And so that's what I want the space to be. Right. That's dope. I know folks came from Idaho. Yeah. That's clean. Yeah. Were they like, did they all know each other? This morning I had a um, family come from the Tri-Cities. That's crazy. Yeah. That's dope. That's dope. So, um, man, I just, I just had a thought, a question and it just escaped me. I'll come back to it. So, oh, that's that's one to ask you. So, um, purpose in a cup. What all does that mean? What all does that entail? Right? Because not only, like you said, you know, you you have a specific vibe and, and intention that you set for the space mm-hmm. you're putting together, the chairs and the sofa and all that. Um, but also, you, you mentioned the mention of you mentioned the mission of um, hiring folks that were, you know previously incarcerated so what all entails purpose in the cup so i actually didn't even have my mission statement until probably about a week before i opened Mm. um i wrote my business plan and i just could not for the life of me come up with a mission statement and somebody sat me down and said well because i've done hr for so long and i've wrote so many policies and procedures and nothing is personal for me not not in hr world and so this is very personal for me and so i needed to remove that that piece and make it personal and purpose in a cup. I mean, every single, everybody is different. So I feel like every cup is different. Like some people will come there just because one, they want to experience it. Some people come there because like, what does a felon look like? Some of these people are business owners and don't hire felons and they mm-hmm. see me or they see people making their coffee and they are a felon, you know, they, they are in recovery. And so they may leave going to change a policy or they may. So, Every single cup is different. There's there's a there's a cup of love. Some people, a girl came in this morning with a newborn baby and she's homeless, sleeping in her car. And so I gave her a list of resources for housing. And so you just never know what somebody is going through. So every single cup that is served has a purpose. Mm-hmm. So, so many people look at entrepreneurs and they see the finished product, right? And they think, oh, God, just whatever you did for them, do it for me, you know? And, and it's almost like, um, our stories are disregarded or people aren't even necessarily interested in like how far we came and how hard it is to get where we are. And some folks wouldn't even want to go through what we went through to get us to the point of, you know what, I'm going to do this on my own. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about like recently within the past two, three, four or five years, you know, what was happening in your life to get you to the point where it's like, you know what, I have to do this on my own because everything else that's happening right now, I can no longer live this way. I think that with, with anything that has changed for me, every, every drastic change that's happened is my life has been from, I don't want to say there's not a good and a bad experience, but it definitely has come from pain. Um, I, I was divorced seven years ago. And so then you become the single mom and all of your stability is gone. And what do you do? Who are you? And so you're, then you're questioning God, like, Hey, cause I mean, I'm, I'm human. I, I question him like, what's going on in my life. And so, 
um, I got my footing underneath me and you move on and you heal. And I, I got a good job and a mod Aubrey happened for me. For me, it was a mod Aubrey. I mm. have a son. He's taller than me. And I just couldn't. I was so uncomfortable after that happened. And then George Floyd happened. And I never, I've never till this day watched the video of George Floyd. I've seen enough. Me neither. I, I couldn't watch. I, I couldn't do it. No. I've seen enough. No. And so when all the protesting happened, I was in that group that um, went and laid on the bridge. Mm. And so that for me was the most life-changing, heartbreaking, empowering moment of my adult life for sure it was almost like i found who i was as a black woman mm. and as a mom to a black son and things changed and then i started going to work and i was working for a company that was um owned and ran by three white republican men mm. and as as a as a woman yes i'm lights you're light skinned to have the job enough to have the job and to have the title and run our company but don't forget that you're black mm. and so now that I'm, I'm doing all this protesting and I'm doing all the work and I'm seeing my son and I was like, something has to change. Like I have to do something different. This can't be the representation that I leave for my child. And it just holy beans evolved. I was like, I have to do something different. And so that's when I was like, I love coffee. I did. I, I did do a lot of research. And so when the economy was crashing during COVID, um, coffee was one of the ones that was not affected mm. so i definitely did that you did your market research I, I did there you go and i wrote a business plan for a little turnkey coffee cart mm. and i was gonna hire a felon and i knew that my son would never clock in for somebody else unless he chose to mm. so you wrote that business plan i did just son in mind two, so two things came up that i really want to dig into that you just mentioned um because i was talking about like highly charged events that change us a lot of times trauma changes us mm -hmm. um or just new life yeah. so you know how has motherhood changed your life and motivated you to achieve and to provide for your son in the way that you do because you know now i, I just want to say before you said like when i had my son 12 years ago my life changed instantly like that yeah and it was like this it's like a necessary or I i'll just say for me it was like a, a instant evolutionary portal that just opened up and i just seen the world different i felt different um and my actions changed and i started thinking about my legacy mm -hmm. and like you said like how is my son gonna grow up yeah like, and then I started thinking, oh, shoot, the future uh, technology, he's not going to have the same opportunities as I do as far as being able to grow up, get a job. It's going to be automation. It's going to be artificial intelligence. Like he He's going to have to be, like, super specialized. And I'm just thinking all these things. Yeah. Um, so not to take up too much of your thoughts, but go ahead. And so I had, I actually, so I got in, this probably pretty quick. I, I had my son within a year of being out of prison. Mm. And it instantly changed me going from somebody that never had a mom or, or a dad. And so I never, I never experienced unconditional love mm. until I became a mom. And so now here I am this mom and it brought a lot of emotions though. Like how, how could a mom not be there? Like how could you not be there? And also how do I even nurture? Like, am I capable of even being a good mom? Because I don't even know what that looks like. I never seen it or experienced it. And so um, it's amazing. My son is like the, my whole world. 
And I would say that, like, I always talk about how I make decisions over and over again to not go back. And yes, it was work and I worked hard and all of that. But my son is the reason I never went backwards. My son is the reason why I've been homeless and I kept going or I've walked away from different jobs. And I knew that no matter what happened or what trial or anything that came up, I was never, ever leave my son without a mom. Mm. And so I've been through a lot of things since I've been out and I've never left my son. My son doesn't know what it's like to be in a drug house. He doesn't know what gangs are like. He doesn't. Um, we actually were in Delta Park the other day and I'm like, yeah, that used to be the welfare office. And he's like, what's the welfare office? What's welfare? And so really having to like explain that to him. But um, one, it was kind of sad. Like, oh my gosh, I need to like introduce you to the real world. But also like as a mom, I was like, wow, like I'm kind of doing an all right job here. Like it's okay. Word, but word. he, he saved me. My son is definitely the reason why I never went back and reverted to my old ways for sure. I mean, that's, that's beautiful because uh, what's the word? Re recidivism. Is that, is mm -hmm. that how you say it? Basically go ahead and break that down for people that don't know what that means. And I know I didn't say it right, but go ahead and explain. Well, what, where are you how are you trying to, what are you trying to break down? Re recidivism. Recidivism. That's it. Recidivism. Maybe. Nope. Mm. Say it right for me. I can't. Oh my God. Just break it down. All right. So that's like uh, the probability that someone goes back mm -hmm. to prison. And so the rate of that for somebody that was formerly incarcerated, I want to say, at least for, for black people, I want to say it's like 50%. Yeah, it's 50 very plus. high. And so you didn't fall in that. I didn't. And I actually talk, um, I do a lot of work with the county and uh, have a lot of meetings and stuff just because they think oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I do got to Do you know how to say that word? We, we said it. No. Okay, cool. All right. I'm about to say, if you know how to say it, you made me trip over like that. That's no, messed no, up. No, no, no. Okay. Right, so, so really having those conversations too, because so why do people go back? You know, when I got out, I couldn't get a job. I couldn't get housing, especially for me. Then I wasn't an addict and I didn't have kids. So they're really like, okay, go figure it out. But how many times does a person get to be told no before you know how many times I was told no and I didn't get a job and I man, I can go sell that dope over there and get what I need real quick, real quick. Mm -hmm. And so if we're constantly telling people no and not setting them up for success and then they go back, whose fault is that? Mm. Who, whose fault is that? Uh, according to the system is our fault. Exactly. Because we can't get right. Right. But if we're not setting them up and we're not, there's a lot of doors that I knocked on that never, never opened for me. Mm -hmm. And now I'm opening those doors. And the, some of the people that didn't open the door for me are now coming to me trying to figure out how I am where I am. Mm. How can we work with you? Show mm -hmm. them our help us out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But you're, I know you've talked about potentially, well, eventually starting a nonprofit around that, right? Yeah. Yeah. So what, what do you plan on that looking like? When I got out, I was put in this, and I feel like a lot of felons are put in this box of, so you're going to go to NA meetings and you're going to go to AA meetings, and that's fine if you need that. Mm -hmm. But I didn't need that. I, I was a hustler and I ran the streets, and so the tools that I needed, I needed, you, first of all, you want me to live paycheck to paycheck, make a minimum wage. Mm. So how do I budget? Like, what does it look like to budget? Mm. You know, I had different kind of trauma. I had trauma and my coping skills were different. They weren't a substance addiction, but they definitely, I liked validation and I was codependent because I didn't know how to, to balance anything. Cause I never had that growing up in a family dynamic. And so mm -hmm. really now that I have this space and I have all of these different resources and these people that I do work with, 
I would love to be able to utilize that space for women that are coming out of incarceration Mm -hmm. and having systems put in place and policies and procedures on, okay, well, what do you need as an individual? A lot of people, when I went to prison, there was no self-checkout. And when I came out, there was self-checkout. And so people don't think about like, Mm. that's scary. I didn't, I wasn't, how can I be vulnerable enough to say, hey, I don't know how to do that. And this is why, without feeling like the whole world is going to judge me because I'm a felon and I'm a prisoner and I just got out. So mm-hmm. I didn't do it for a really long time. So really like meeting people where they're at, mm-hmm. a lot of women are getting out that have been in there for 10 years. They don't know how to do a resume or fill a job application out online. Right. But we're just saying, okay, online. you're free, go live. Yeah. So really just providing that space to nurture people because if you give people just a little tool. Like they feel so empowered as a person, as a human, like I'm validated that somebody cares about me. So let me go try to do what I want to do. Yeah. That's so necessary. I, you know, I I got a buddy that, uh, unfortunately has been, been in and out, but like, even, even when he went in, he went in like, uh, late 2019. And then he got out around like in the summer of 2020. And he was like, yeah, bro, let's go to the park. Let's uh, meet with these people. Let's just do this, do that. And I'm just like, bro, we can't go outside like that. And we can't approach people like that. Right. He's like, what you mean? I'm like, bro, it's COVID. You just can't. He's like, nah, but we need to shoot this video. I'm like, no, we can't do that, bro. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's just like, it's a totally different world. Yeah. And so that was just a span of like nine months. Yeah. So you're saying like five, 10 years. Mm-hmm. Even, totally different I mean, world. two years. Like when I went, there was no Facebook and any of that. And so there's just like these different like platforms and so I think that providing a space that it's okay to talk about not knowing where you are at that moment. I always tell like I do a lot of like talking with kids and mentoring and stuff and it's okay to not know who you are and surround yourself with good people and a good solid team, but it's not okay to act like you do know who you are. Mm. You know, and I think that when we get out, if we don't provide these spaces, these safe spaces and make them feel safe, then they're just going to act like they have it together and it's a cycle. Word. Um, I'm glad you said that. So I wanted to bring this up in this perfect time. So I want to say about two years ago, maybe three years ago now, uh, I did a racial identity series that dealt with colorism mm. in the black community. Now, and yeah, so colorism, but also just identity. Right. And so um, I and me being a dark skinned black man or just a brown skinned black man, I identify I thought I was using the term colorism wrong. Right? So I thought that the definition of colorism as I perceived it in my community was light skinned people not being accepted as black enough. And I thought that on a on an interracial on a intraracial basis there was discrimination towards light-skinned people within the black community and that they had it harder growing up because they had to prove their blackness all the time. And then in the process of doing the series, I learned that no colorism is the preferential treatment that, you know, lighter skinned black people get from the dominant society. Mm -hmm. Right. But in this highly refined stage of racism, white supremacy, as I like to call it, um, a biracial, you know, half black, half white person cannot be classified as white. So can you speak about the experience of 
um, growing up in the country, moving to the city, never being white enough for the white people, never being black enough for the black people, um, and just trying to find your identity and trying to fit in, but just like really trying to love yourself in that process of not being enough for, for both sides. Wow. I would say that it took me a long, it took me probably until 2020 to really know who I, not know who I was like as a person and what's successful and all that crap, but as, as what's my race, like who am I, where, who, mm. where do I fit into this world really mm-hmm. pretty much. And so growing up um, in the country, I never had a perm. I never had, <laughs> I never had any of that. I didn't even know how to match my clothes. I wore rubber boots and hung out with sheep and cows. And so um, you were wearing rubber boots before Kanye. That was what you saying? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. It, it was a thing. Let me tell you, <laughs> it was a thing. And so I, 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 do, I would say that I think I had more history of who I was for my white side because I knew generations of like, okay, this was this person was born here, this person, this is where your Native Americans came in. And so mm-hmm. um, I would say that the white side of my family were very good about keeping the record of like this is that, but I never knew that from my black side. And so when I moved here, um, one, I went to Jeff. It was very. Um, that's black. It, it was very black. It was yes. very culture shock. Uh, that's a shock to come from the country and then go to Jeff. Because mm-hmm. like I only lasted a couple weeks. With, with, with all due respect to my demos, like I didn't want to go to Jeff, and I grew up in Northeast <laughs> Prime. Like I me, mean, it's too hood over there. I'm going to Benson. I'm not. I'm not that hood. I with I, all with all due respect to the demos, I love y'all, but y- y'all know how it was back in the day. Come on now. It was. It was intense. It was. It was, something it was else. very intense. It was and else. so. Um, I was in a transition of one trying to figure out who my mom was at this point. So now this huge transition, um, I didn't know anything about my hair. I didn't know how to match my clothes. And so I just stuck out like a sore thumb and I really like, you talk to you proper. I'm going to cut your hair. Like it, it was a lot. It was, it was a lot for me. And so fast forwarding to 2020, then, you know, obviously like I kind of got it together and oh, I'm kind of cute and all that. So 2020 happened and my cousin on my mom's side actually reached out to me and I didn't know how it came up. And she's like, you don't, you don't know where your dad's family comes from. And I was like, I don't even know. Like I didn't even know past my grandparents, their first name, you know? And so she's a professor, she works for U of O and she's like, well, I'm going to see what I can find. And literally 2020 Juneteenth, she sends me an email of a genealogy for my dad's side of the family. And it goes back five generations all the way to the slave owners names and from Texas to Arkansas. And so talk about a gift. That's crazy. Yeah, And it's not a joke, but like, it's kind of funny. Like I think black people are going to get reparations in the next five to seven years yeah. in America. So you good. Yeah. You, you're going to get your check. You got the proof already. Yeah, it, it, but it's it was mind blowing to yeah, know yeah. that my great great grandpa couldn't read or write, and he was picking cotton, and he was owned by Terrell Jackson, the slave owner. She, she know the name. Yeah, yeah, I got death certificates and everything, and so mm. between George Floyd and the genealogy, I just I knew who I was. Yeah, I knew who I was in the world, and at the end of the day, yes, I'm biracial, but. 
I'm a black woman, you know, I'm a black woman with a beautiful black son and it's amazing. And it feels really, really good to be whole, to be whole in that aspect of my life. Mm. Um, And I never knew I was missing that ever. Mm. And so really just taking on this whole different role and feeling so empowered, like black women are powerful. So Mm. yes, I was like, working and doing HR and sitting in the corner and wearing the, the flats and the, the suits mm. and, and just doing this whole, like what the white society we want me to do. And yeah. now I'm like, wait a minute. Like I know who I am. Like I rock Jordans and Nikes and hoodies and like, I'm not wearing all that. I'm not right. fitting into your bubble and what you mm. want me to fit into. And so yeah. really I evolved, I evolved in 2020 and I really, really think it was, it was that genealogy really mm. like seeing it physically. This is who I am. It's something about knowing exactly, like, like you said, your great grandparents. Mm-hmm. So in a uh, um, two thousand nine, I went to a family reunion in North Carolina on my dad's side, and it was his grand, like my my grandparents or my grandfather's family reunion, right? And so, um, and my grandfather has like thirteen or fourteen siblings. Wow! So my family is huge, like, and I met a, a huge part of my family that's. Uh, in New York and Maryland and a whole bunch of North Carolina. I got so much family, like, you know, uh, like Papoose, that's like my second or third cousin. Wow. I'll never meet him probably <laughs> unless we, unless he goes to a family in North Carolina, you know, but yeah. it's like, I got a lot of family all over the country. So I say all that to say, um, during that family, family reunion, um, they showed us that hadn't been to a reunion in a long time. They showed us our genealogy and they traced it back to, uh, a woman named Rebecca who came over from the West Indies and she came over like in the 1850s and then talked about her um, five children that were born in America. Um, four of them were born enslaved and one, one line was born free. Wow. Right. Um, and then we fast forwarded up to my grandfather's line and his father talked about his father and we saw the land where they used to pick tobacco. And so my grandfather was born in 1917. When he was 13, he was strong enough to do the same amount of work as a grown man. So in 1930, he would plow fields of tobacco with my great grandfather. So they were sharecroppers, essentially making 50 cents a day. Mm-hmm. And my grandfather didn't even get paid. It was just my great grandfather. And then my great grandfather had to like negotiate with the landowners like, hey, my son is doing the same amount of work as everybody else. We deserve a raise, a, a raise, and we should get a dollar yeah. per day. And the landlord was like, "Well, I'll give you seventy-five cents per day." That was nineteen thirty. That's not even a hundred years that long ago. ago. No, right? And so it's just like I think about what my most recent ancestors went through within the twentieth century, within a hundred years ago. Within within a hundred years, and then where we're at right now, yeah, and it's just like man, just all the gratitude, but like knowing exactly who you are and where you came from is is priceless. It's it's powerful, even yeah. to like go through each grandparents and their kids, and they would say, okay, well, he picked uh, cotton, or my great great grandma, she couldn't read, or and they would even go like, okay, well, this was their kids, and this one was a mulatto. And this mm. was, and then so, and then my great great grandpa Frank, he wasn't even a person until he was eighteen because he was just a tick mark. What does that mean? They didn't count them as people. 
because he was he was owned by a slave oh. until uh, to a, he was owned he was owned by somebody so he was 18 yeah. and then he became he became a person he wasn't on the census until he was 18 Sheesh. and so to see and what what year was that ooh, i don't remember that he showed up i don't remember but to see how hard they worked and to see how perseverance perseverance and just how they kept going and going and to know that it's like wow well maybe that's where my worth ethic comes from like i come from something i come from strength i come from work i come mm -hmm. from them making it out of no way and then my grand my great grandma coming here and she used to sit in her kitchen it's so crazy so she uh, couldn't read or write she's my great grandma nettie and she would sit in her window on mallory street mm -hmm. and drink coffee and so now one of my cousins was like, you're literally living out Grandma Nettie's dream. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. That's crazy. That's so adult. I would definitely encourage. It's a gift. It's a gift and it's an honor to know where you come from. So I, if, if you have that ability or it, I, I would encourage everybody to do that for sure. Yeah. It's a gift and I get to pass it on to my son, you know. That's beautiful. Man, so you're living out your grandma's dream. Yeah. That's wild. What that What that clock say up there? Eight minutes. You lying. We got eight minutes. Yeah. Sheesh. We on the clock, y'all. All right. So <laughs> let's 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 wrap it up. Let's get into rapid fire. Okay. Um, are you ready? I'm ready. Let's do so it. So look, don't don't overthink it. Just the first thing that comes to your mind. Oh my gosh. All right. Okay. All right. When you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up? A nurse. A nurse. Why didn't you become a nurse? I went left and became a felon. Fair enough. Best advice you ever have or you've ever received? Oh, my gosh. The best. I, re I receive advice every day. Mm -hmm. Stop saying I'm trying. You're doing it. Mm. What's the worst advice you've ever received? Be spontaneous and don't have a plan. <laughs> <laughs> that is kind of bad. Yeah. Yeah. You got to be intentional in these streets. Um most interesting person you've met in life the most interesting well that's me okay next uh no go ahead <laughs> i don't know i haven't met a lot of people mm, 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 mm. what come back to that me, yeah we come back come to back that. to that okay. all right um if you could choose any one celebrity as your life coach who would it be and why oprah why oprah has literally made it through everything she's persevered and she she wrote a book and she got her story out there and she didn't care whose feelings she was hurting it was her truth and she spoke her truth and she lives in her truth and she turned around and she helps people and that's what i want my life to be that's beautiful three month fully financed sabbatical for you to just rest and relax and recharge. Where are you going? Fiji. Tell me why. Um, I love the culture. Mm. I, I lived with a family uh, between 17 and 18, and the culture is beautiful. The water, the, the people. Um, I love to meditate. I just, mm. I love it. I, I, I love it. I want to go there. That's a long flight. I don't care. It'll be worth it, though. Yeah. Three months. Yep. Um, If racism ended tonight, how do you think the world would change? I think it would be quiet. 
Why would it be quiet? Because everything's so political and so based around that. And mm. I, th I think it would be quiet because people will be confused and have so much empty headspace. They wouldn't know what to do. Wow. That's profound. I literally just came up with that question today. I've never asked anybody that question. And I don't know the answer to that. But thank you. That's That helps me think about that. Wow. What do you do if you don't have judgment about everybody else? What do you do with that space? You just live life. And you just maximize your opportunities. Like I remember when you put it like that, um, I went to Texas Southern University, historically black college in Houston, Texas. And um, it was like utopia. And not only did I go to a black college in the city, but we were in third ward, like South side, like everything is black. Right. And so I'll, I go to the bank, black. I go to the grocery store, black. I go to the corner store, black, right? And so uh, go to Frenchie's Chicken, of course, black. And so I didn't realize how liberating that was until I came back home for Christmas break. And then I, I landed in PDX and I'm like, oh my God, I haven't really seen a white person in three months. Yeah, I didn't even think about race or racism because I was enveloped in my culture. I know, I tell my son, like you have to leave for college. You can come back, yeah, but I, come I back. want him to leave and to experience that. I don't yeah. want him to uh, to stay here. You gotta have that. Yeah, like we we earned it. <laughs> We've done our time mm -hmm. yeah. in the whitest city in America. We earned a utopian experience. Um. So yeah, any HBCU, just get out, get away for sure. If you woke up tomorrow and found out that you hit the lottery for a hundred million dollars, how would you spend your time and your money from that day forward? Wow. Well, I would buy a house. <laughs> I probably a couple. Um, a few houses. Okay. Yeah, probably a couple. I mean, I wouldn't really. Maybe another holy bean somewhere on the East Coast. I definitely. Um, Just one. You got a hundred mil. I know. I can't even comprehend without comprehend what that would even be like. Mm -hmm. Okay. I I definitely invest. I don't know what I would invest in. But I definitely would invest in some things. I would try to triple it, make it make money for me, make it make sense. Mm -hmm. um, I have a huge heart for the homeless. Mm -hmm. um, so I definitely would, would try to figure some stuff out for them. And how would you spend your time? Well, you know, I live my life for everybody else. So I'd, I would have a lot of money. So I'd have a lot of mental space that would be free. And I would be helping people and loving on people. I don't think that will ever change about me no matter how much money I have. I think that that's, that's who I am. That's dope. That's dope, as you should. Lastly, last question. Um, what message do you want communicated at your eulogy? I know that's heavy. Ooh. At my eulogy, I would hope that people see how much I cared for people, how important it is for me to see people succeed, for people to see and to know that representation is everything. And so it's okay to come from nothing and and to get it and to get it out of the mud and you can do it. And so I hope that I'm representation for hope, mm. for self-discipline, for perseverance, for being a good mom, for being a good friend, for being a good daughter, mm. um, for being a good believer, 
you know, I'm a little crazy too. So, you know, you gotta, there, there'll be a little sarcastic stuff in there too, but, mm-hmm. um, for being consistent, for, for stepping up and showing up and, and being a voice for the voiceless and for the people that aren't here and can't speak. Word. That's beautiful. Simply put. Now, for all the folks that want to highlight you, I mean, not highlight you, but get in, get in touch with you. Right. And, um, plug in, tap in with the business. Uh, what are the socials they need to plug into? Uh, so we're on Facebook, Holy Beans Coffee, Instagram, Holy Beans Coffee. Also, we have a website, holybeanscoffee.com that has all of the merch on it. Um, I do have my own coffee beans that you oh, can yes. order. Oh, yes. Tell us about the beans. I, I do have my, my own beans. Let's go. So if, if you're not local, if you are local and you would like to wake up and sip some holy coffee, mm. you definitely can order that online. I've got merch everywhere. Mm-hmm. You, um, The space is available for rental. We have a lot of people that rent the spaces out. I've been doing a lot of public speaking, so you can inquire on that there. But um, holybeanscoffee.com. Facts. Shalimar is booked and busy nowadays, y'all. Y'all, y'all better catch her while the price is low. You know what I mean? Because she's going to get on her speaking gig and it's, the price is going up. Ain't that right? It's going up. <laughs> That's what's up. Um, any any final words, any final thoughts you want to leave the people before we go here? Um, I I appreciate this. This was great. No doubt. Yeah. No doubt. Getting, the, getting your rust off. You did, this, you did a good job. Thank you. Um, no, I just appreciate this. I'm in awe of, of my own life and I'm so, I'm so grateful. I, I feel like I get so much recognition, but I also, I have a solid team behind me. You know, mm. I have great people that support me. Talk about the team. Um, so I have Nike and Herman Green, who are my mentors who I met in prison. They were my first, literally like got me my clothes when I got out of prison. They were my first customers at Holy Beans. Very consistent, very beautiful people. Again, representation on, on black and getting it out of the mud and, and a beautiful black, healthy marriage. And so, um, David Ferguson, David Ferguson took a chance on me. He owns the building in Mm. Northeast Portland and, and not only is he my landlord and took it, but he is full of wisdom and knowledge and he pours into me and he's got my back and he believes in me. And so that's amazing. The community, the community has been fantastic. the, The support that I have from the community is amazing. Um, I've met some really great people. You're great. Oh, thank um, you, thank you. Who else? Uh, literally, like everybody in the neighborhood has just been has been amazing. Devon Horace, he's been amazing. I met him. Yeah, my guy. Yeah, mm-hmm. the energy, the wisdom, the knowledge, and just like genuinely wants to see me win. So, mm-hmm. my my team is solid. That's a fact. That's a fact. Shout out to Deb, man. We just did an event March seventeenth. That was dope. The entrepreneur strategy so session. That was that was a lot of fun. Yeah, you guys have to do that again. Definitely, definitely. Well, that's it. Socks and Sandals podcast episode 180. We are back. We back in the building, y'all. Hold on. Is this going to work? Nope. There we go. I got buttons, y'all. I'm going to preload my sounds. Shalomar said I should preload the slap that Will Smith gave Chris Rock. Oh, my God. <laughs> no? No. Leave it off? Leave it off. Leave okay. It off. All right. Cool. That's a All whole right. different conversation. That would be a whole nother hour. That's a fact. That's a yeah. fact. Once again, y'all, it's the Socks and Sandals podcast where economic elevation and spiritual cultivation converge. And we unapologetically discuss our worldview. Highlight y'all next time. Grace and peace.